Welcome back, everybody. So let us learn this morning. First of all, thank you to Mark and Shirley Billets for sponsoring Lili Nishmas, Sorry River Bus, Laser, Melech, um, whose Shloshim we are in right now, for Mrs. Shirley Billet Sr. Um, our limut should be a continued alias neshama, and the mishpacha should continue to give her nachas for all the many, many incredible things they do. I uh, also want to thank Roby Frankel, who is sponsoring today's share, Roby and Eva, um, who, who are sponsoring today's, uh, today's share. Um, let us dive straight into this topic. This is a topic which follows on the steps of on Purim. I was actually at the rabbi's house. I was with Shlomo Wilamowski, and Shlomo leaned over to the rabbi and said, Did you see this latest tweet? So that was when I found out mid-afternoon about this tweet that President Trump had tweeted on Thursday afternoon, and here is the wording. After 52 years, it is time for the United States to fully recognize Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights, which is of critical strategic and security importance to the state of Israel and regional stability. Exclamation point. You have to use every one of the 140 characters you possibly can. <laughs> so this, is the, this was the tweet which, which set off a whole chain of celebrations and demonstrations. And what was notable is, is that just within a few, within 24 hours, of course, the, U, the, UN, um, the UN RHC immediately had a 26 against 16 vote against Israel's occupation of the Golan Heights. Just to set the record straight, just to make sure that nobody was getting excited about anything against international law. So, what was that? I think it is the HRC, that's why I'm confused. I copied direct. It should be the Human Rights Council. I believe this is a misprint from the Jerusalem Post. Okay. Nonetheless, hopefully it is, correct. it is corrected. What was that? They both voted against us. So nothing has changed. So here we go. Let's, let's just try to appreciate a few things. So here's, here's a few points just to appreciate. In the, in, the world, in, the, in the world of international law that we live, I am certainly not an expert in international law, but it, just, it used to be the case that there was something called the right of conquest. The right of conquest would be is that if you decided to conquer a particular territory, you own that territory. And most of the countries we know were created through the right, right of conquest, whether colonially, America, numerous states in America, many of the countries around the world were created through the rights of conquest. Um, which led to ultimately World War I and later on World War II. And so in the 20th century, basically the world got together and said we, we can't have this right of conquest business anymore because it's too damaging, there's too much imperialism and colonialism going on. So they, they tried to pedal back, they tried to scale it back. Um, so in 1919 with the establishment of the League of Nations, part of the charter was against the right to con uh, of conquest, 1928, the Kellogg-Briand Pact, and later, later ratified in 1974 um, by the UN uh, in, I believe it was 3322, I believe is the number of the resolution, in which basically, unless there, unless the, that there's the status quo is preserved, and anything which is seen as an attack is considered an act of aggression, and there's a way of, de of defining what is an act of an aggression, and uh, how who we can de define who starts a war, which becomes complicated with the rise of terrorism, because terrorism doesn't make it easy to say what's actually who started a war. Now, here's the here's the, the interesting thing about this, is that it is the idea behind this, behind this international law makes a lot of sense, and it probably makes a lot of sense in a lot of areas, but not necessarily in the Middle East. Because you can't stop children in the middle of a fight, Lahavdil, and say, okay, everybody st stop where you are right now, 
And you're all going to keep the toys that you're fighting over right now when you don't have context, when it comes to a very complex area. So for what happened essentially is they, they freeze-framed this moment in the Middle East, and they said, okay, anybody changes the status quo, you're considered the aggressor. Now, the problem is, is like this, is that in doing such, they were ultimately preserving the colonial boundaries created by Britain and France themselves. Meaning, what is Syria in the first place? What is Iraq? What is Lebanon? Who, who created all of this? So what did they do? They freeze-framed colonial settings and said that they now become the status quo. That's what we're dealing with now. So anybody who starts quibbling with us, but they don't reflect the, the realities on the ground. Take, for example, the Kurds. Right? The Kurds didn't get in their own space because when, the, when you know, Sykes and Picot in, in, 19, in 1918 were busy you know, you know, arrogantly dividing up the Middle East, they had no idea about the Kurds. They, they didn't take that into account. They didn't take into account the Jewish homeland. They didn't take into account any of this. It was the Balfour Declaration. It was a revolutionary afterwards. But just to appreciate this, so we're kind of left with this mess, a colonial mess, but we have to keep that colonial mess. That's where we're at. So my argument is the following, and I'm not a legal uh, and international law, law expert, but the, but the is the following. If we want to appreciate, we'll call it context. If we want to appreciate who was living there first, then we need to go back all the way to the beginning. If we don't appreciate it, then we should appreciate the right of conquest. It's, comp it's mutually exhaustive. If you're going to talk about who was there first, let's learn about who was there first. So let's learn about who, who was there first. If that's what you wanted to understand, you want context, you want the indigenous inhabitants, let's learn about the indigenous inhabitants. So we're going to do a little bit of history, because facts are not usually because some of the things which get in the way of the, U of the UN, no matter how council it is, but let's learn a little bit about the facts. Let's, learn, let's appreciate what we're talking about over here. Because sometimes we think to ourselves, Golan, it sounds Israeli, it sounds like a new invention, it sounds like colonial aggression. In fact, any map you'd look at right now, you look at a map, you look at Google Maps right now, it'll call it Israeli-occupied Golan. It won't call it Israel. It'll call it Israeli-occupied Golan. Because under international law, Israel occupied Syria's territory. Let's, let's, try to, let's try to appreciate this. So in terms of what are we talking about, there's going to be a lot of maps over here that are, that are relevant. So if on, the, on, the, on the page two, this is a, what, what area are we talking about right now? So the Golan Heights itself, the Golan Heights itself is an area, a swath of land, which is as is described by its name, is a height. It is higher than the, the regional territory. It is to the northeast of the Kinneret, and it, it goes all the way up to Mount Hermon, and it controls, essentially, it controls most of the area because of its heights. It overlooks, you can see Damascus from it going north. You can see all of the Galil going south. It's a very, it's a, it's a very strategic point from, from a military perspective. It overlooks Lebanon, to the west, it is a very important, um, a very important piece of land which was which was conquered by Israel in a defensive war in 1967, and rec reclaimed in 1974. Let's try to appreciate the back the back history to this. So let's start at the beginning. We're going to look at a few different important stages of, of Jewish history all the way through. We start in Parshas Lech Lecha. Avram Avinu has a vision which we call Bris Ben Avsarim. What is he promised in the Bris Ben Avsarim? This is what we call the promised land. The promised land to Avram Avinu is the following. He is told, this is in Perek, Tesvav in Bereshis, Esakeni, Vesakenizi, Vesakadmoini. He's promised three nations, which are beyond the regular seven. Vesakhiti, Vesaprizi, Vesarefoim, Vesamari, Vesaknani, Vesagirgoshi, Veshayevusi. So here we go. Here we have it. 
we usually are used to talking about the seven nations of Israel. But what Avram Avinu was actually promised really in reality was ten nations of Israel. That means to say that the seven nations of Canaan that we usually talk about in the map are in, in we'll call in the, fra- the regular frame of reference of what we know as Israel. We'll see perhaps some of the boundaries in a moment. The, K- the Kadmoni, the Kani, Kinesi, and Kadmoni are actually further north in this, the Syrian area as well. Part of the promised area land seems to be this territory of the, uh, which includes a further northern boundary. We'll see in a second what that looks like. I appreciate, Jack, thank you so much. There's a number of maps which are going to go around just to appreciate this. We're going to look at some of the maps which are very, very um, elucidated maps from the Dat Mikra. Dat Mikra is one of the Pirushim, the archaeological Pirushim, the historical Pirushim on Tanakh. It also, they also have something which is called the Atlas, which is fantastic. If anybody has the opportunity of buying the Dat Mikra Atlas, it's expensive, but it's very worthwhile. It's the biblical, his, um, his, uh, historical map of all the different stages of the Middle East, of uh, when it comes to the different stages in Tanakh. Really, really worthwhile appreciating this. This is the first, the first promise. The promised land seems to be a very expansive promise. We're going to see in a second what that looks like in, in a moment. Let's compare it to what was actually given to the land of Israel in by Midbar in Parshas Masay Perek Lamedalad. We're told the following. Our focus today, because there's so much we could look at, is something near the northern border. That's just all we're looking at because the northern border is what, is what relates to the Golan Heights. So here's what we're told in, Bere- in Bamidbar, Lamedalim, we're going to compare the promised land and the given land. Those two are, uh, may be the same or may not be the same. Let's take a quick look at this and then we'll look at the maps. So this is what we're told. This is going to be your northern boundary. This is Moshe Rabbeinu speaking from the mouth of Hashem to the nation of Israel on Arvos Moab, on the steps of Moab, we're on the, where Jordan is today, looking into the land of Israel. Right, this is what they are told. From the great sea, what's the great sea? Mediterranean, from Horahahar, debated area as to where that is. This could be in the northern Lebanon, according to many. We'll see in a second. May Horahahar to Saul of Hamas. It would go eastwards towards Hamas. And it would go down to Tzadad. So we need to find out where Hatsar Einan could be, because that seems to be the corner of the northeastern boundary. So the boundary will descend downwards from the east. Um, and it will go along the Kesef, which literally means, what's Kesef mean? The shoulder of the Kinneret from the, from the east. So the shoulder of the Kinneret from the east. It's fascinating. If you take a look, there's an essay written by Rav Elitzur on... VBM on the virtual base measure is worthwhile, very interesting argument, where he proves uh, he proves that the word kasef must include the Golan Heights, just because it's it's a little vague over here. What is that kasef? It must be. He gives another two examples in Tanakh where the word kasef is used to describe a neighboring body of land which is higher than the rest of the lands. So this is in in this description of Yaradagvul Yardena, and then of course the Jordan becomes the boundary. Okay, now let's take a quick look at the maps for this. What this looks like. Take a look in map. One and figure one and figure two. Let's just try to appreciate what's going on over here. The reason this is important is the following. The Mephoshim struggle with the following point. On the one hand, Avram Avinu is told he's getting what is called the Promised Land, this expansive border of Israel. When Moshe Rabbeinu tells Bnei Israel you're going into the land of Israel, it seems like it's a different description. So the Mephoshim struggle. Is this the same? Is this different? One option in the Mephoshim is it's simply terminologically different. It's not different in terms of, in, in, in the actual, we'll call it facts on the ground. It's just the terms are given to us in Bamidbar Lamedalad, which actually describe exactly what Avram Avinu was getting. 
which gives us a much more expansive view of the land of Israel. The other Mephoshim say, no, no, no. We were supposed to get more, but that's ultimately a futuristic thing. Aaron Vinu has been told about the future at some point, whether it be at the times of David and Melech, whether it be sometime later. But ultimately, the borders were a little more, a little more subtle, a little more limited in terms of what we're getting as we were standing on the banks of the, um, of the, of the Jordan River about to go into the land of Israel. So there are the, north, the southern nations. We, we, when it comes to Ammon and Moab, there are certainly southern nations. Not going to be so much relevant to us now because we, um, we're going to focus the top right corner. We're focusing on north northeastern corner, which is the Golan, just for, the, just for this year because there's so much to talk about. So here, yeah, let's appreciate this. So let's take a look at the map for a second. This is the Dat Mikra. Now you'll see that um, on the first page, the, the parts which are important is on the first page is the promised land. You will see that there is a dotted line towards the top of the, pa uh, of the page where it says Mount Hor, which is by the, uh, the Aminus Mountains. This is North North Jordan, uh, sorry, Lebanon. And on the bottom left of the is by Wadi, the Wadi of Egypt, by the, we'll call the eastmost tributary or branch of the Nile River. On the bottom left is another dotted line. That is the promised land, meaning what Avram Avinu was promised is an extremely expansive territory. We're talking about basically all the way into Egypt and all the way including all of Lebanon and a lot of Syria. Okay, so that's what we're talking about, the promised land to Abraham, just to appreciate what Avram was given. Now, depending on, depending on whether by Midbar Lamadal is reflecting that or not, we'll now perhaps get, yield a different response. So take a look on the second page. If we assume... If we assume that it is a more limited, that what Moshe Rabbeinu was saying was a little more limited, then on the second page over here we have what is the, the land which is given to, to, uh, to Moshe Rabbeinu. And it's a little, a little lower, perhaps Mount, uh, Mount Harahar is not the Aminus Mountains, which are later, uh, much further north. But it's, a, it's, it's a Levo Hamas, can you see in the middle of the page there, is a little bit of a line going down to Tzadod, which is certainly deep into, it's much further than Sidon, it's much further north than Tyre, but it's still in, we'll call it midway through Lebanon, moving into Syria, including Damascus, including the Bashan Hills, as the, as the land that we're going to get from Israel. Now what's interesting about this is, whichever way you cut it, whether or not the land promised to Abraham is the same land promised to the nation of Israel on the banks of of, uh, of, uh, of, the, of, of Moab, on the banks of the Jordan, it does seem to include the area called, what we call Bashan, right, or the Golan Heights, which is where, what we're talking about now. That's what it seems. Now again, it's very hard to work out because the cities we're talking about are no longer cities which are extant. Right, so we're talking about Chatzarenan, Sedoda, Hamas, these are no longer cities we can pinpoint precisely for the most part. But it seems that it would seem that included in the, pro the land which was promised to the nation of Israel before they entered the land of Israel was in fact inclusive of this. But truth be told, is that's not necessarily what happens. Because as we know, when we, learn, when we go through the Torah itself, there's a few little, little differences that occurred. One exciting difference is, is the fact that we had this, this area which was taken by Ruvain, Gad, and Chatsi, Shevet, Menashe. What happens? They arrive on the east bank of the Jordan, which is the country of Jordan today, and God and Meruvain have a lot of flock, and they say, you know what? This is great fertile pasture. It's part of the fertile crescent. We have the Jordan River feeding these pastures. Let's take this. So they make a request of Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu is very resistant to it. He makes a very clear and careful condition that they have to come in to fight for the land in order to be able to, uh, to acquire this, but ultimately he accedes. 
And interestingly enough, he throws in Chatsi Shevet Menashe into the mix. Big debate, why Chatsi Shevet Menashe is there? They were not requesting it. Or well, once had the opportunity of being in Gush for Shabbos, <coughs> and Rav Yoel bin Nun gave the shear in the afternoon before Mincha. It was very interesting. And he argued the very, very interesting thing. He says, Menashe came from the children of Yosef, and of course the notion of Tzlovchad. There were people who were Mechavev, they loved the land of Israel. So potentially he argued that the, and based on, it wasn't just himself, based on a lot of sources, very interesting argument, that perhaps Chatsi Shev Menashe was thrown in there to be the bridge tribe. So that we shouldn't have the, we'll call it the two tribes floating away from the mothership. So what do they do? The Moshe Rabbeinu split up a tribe to be the bridge to retain and maintain the connection because we already see in Sefer Yehoshua, Perek, Chof, Beis, we see that the, the re, already there seems to be cessation is talked about from the union. Already we start seeing um, a, little bit of, a little bit of friction which occurs. So Chatsi Shev is added into the mix. There are other arguments as to how Chatsi Shev got there. Some of Farshim say that that's ultimately the northern part in Bashan was where they were actually allotted in Israel, in Israel proper. Meaning, when Moshe Rabbeinu said this whole area in the north, that was where Chatsi Shev was predetermined to have, which is the area of the Golan Heights. Fascinating, independent of the request of Ruvain Gad. Where is the area of Ruvain Gad? Just to appreciate this. Let's take a look in source three for a second. Anikach Boezahi, Esaaretz is in Devarim Perak Gimel. Anikach Boezahi, Esaaretz Miyad Shnei Malchem Ori, Asher Be'ever Yadin Minachal Anon V'Ad Har Hermon. So they conquered the land. They conquered the land trans Jordan from the two Amorite kings. These are Canaanite kings, not Ammon, not Moab, not Edom. They conquered them and they got conquered as far north as. Okay, they different lang- lang- names in the different languages there. These were all the lands of the territory of Og, and his land was called Bashan. We took that from him when we were on Transjordan. Skipping down to Pasuk Yud Dalad. In fact, we know who settled there. The Yair ben Menashe. Yair ben Menashe from the Hayus from half of the tribe of Menashe. Lokaches called Chevel Argov at Gavul Hagishuriva Machasi. He took the area of Argov till the Gavul of Maacha and Gishur. Those are important names we're going to have to hold in reference in just a moment. Vayikra Oisom al Shemoy es Abashon Chavos Yair ad Hayomazeh. And he called that area Chavos Yair. We always hear the term Chavos Yair. There's in fact there's a, a set of responses under that name. Chavos Yair appears many times throughout Tanakh. Very fascinating. Area. Where is that? That is in the Bashan. If you take a look at, um, at, uh, at map 3 for a second. This is in the north over here. We see the Sea of Galilee, the Kinneret on the left. The Kingdom of Og and Bashan is this whole area, the Argov territory to the right. So we're talking going from Jordan today into Syria. This is the area of Og Melech Bashan when it was conquered by Ruven, Gad, and Chatsi, Shev, Menashe, all of Israel. This is the area that Menashe was taking. Chavos Yair is to the right. Chavos Yair over there is to the right of um, in Gilad going up just below the Kinneret, moving northwards. Not very precise as to where and how far, but none there seems to be that Chatsi, Shev, Menashe is certainly the area around the Kinneret to the northeast. Okay, so just to appreciate this little change. It is interesting, by the way. Okay, let's, uh, let's um, actually, uh, let's get into conquest. This is all up to now. Two sets of promises, and then initial conquest. The initial conquest is before the land into the land of Israel, before we enter Savior Yeshua. Once they enter into Savior Yeshua, there seems to be a, a dramatic um, stirrer. There seems to be a dramatic 
um, contradiction in, in terms. If you read Sefer Yoshua all the way up to Perak Yud Beis, it talks about conquest after conquest after conquest. You read Perak Yoshua, Perak Yud Beis, it talks about 31 kings. Okay, the way it used to work was there'd be tribal territories which are controlled by a king, and all the vassal uh, states around it would be controlled by that king. 31 kings were conquered. It sounds colossal. It sounds like Yoshua did an incredible job. You start reading Perak Yud Gimel, not so simple. Take a look at the beginning of Perak Yud Gimel in source 5. This is the first pasuk. Yoshua, you're old. And there's much which was unconquered. Meaning, Yoshua did not fulfill the mandate of Moshe Rabbeinu in Parshish Maseh Bamibar Lamedalet. He was not able to fulfill the full conquest of the land of Israel. And then it goes on to give an extensive list of the lands which were not conquered. In that list, in source in in Psukim Yud Beis to Yigimul, which is the next little boxes in the table. Kol mamluchus oig babashon Hashemolach ba'ashtaros ve'edrei who nishar miyeser refoim ba'yakem Moshe ve'yorishem. So Moshe Benu took hold of the Bashan area that was pre Yoshua. Ve'loyorishu bnei Yisrael as a Geshuri ve'as a Ma'achosi, but they couldn't penetrate to the area of Geshur and Ma'acha. Ba'yeshu Geshur and Ma'acha bekeri Yisrael adayamazeh, and they remained among Israel. What do you think it means? They remained among Israel. So I mean, the, na the natural inhabitants remained there. Some sort of tax, some sort of, some sort of, they, they were they were allowed to peacefully remain there. In fact, just in case you're wondering, David Melech's son Avshalom was in fact a product of a marriage to a princess of Geshur. Just to appreciate, this was a political marriage. Avshalom, David Melech's child from his fourth marriage, was a product of a marriage from the daughter of Melech Geshur. Melech Geshur was not Jewish. She converted to Judaism, but to understand the relationships, the political relationships, where is Geshur? Geshur is this northern area here. Let's take a quick look. Um, if you take a look at the, the same map we were looking at a moment ago, you see where it says on, in figure three, there's the area called Mount Hermon, and it says there's the Geshurites, a little question mark. The Geshurites seem to be around the area of Mount Hermon. So it sounds like they were pushing towards that area they couldn't fully conquer. They have Argov, which is below Geshur, and Macha, they can't fully penetrate into that area. By the way, if there's anybody listening online, all the maps are going to be posted online, just because this is very visual. We need to appreciate this. We need to see the facts on the ground. Okay. If we take a look in, in, in figure four, this is actually one relief of the areas which are not conquered by Yoshua. It's to be found on page 137, actually, in the Dat Mikram Atlas. And the way, if you take a quick look at this, you'll notice that the areas which aren't conquered seem to be, first of all, the area of the Philistines, which were thrown in their sides for many, many years later. That's in the area of Gaza. seems to be a problem for Israel for many, many, many years. And then in the north, you have this whole area, the swath of land, which should have been conquered. They should have gone much further up into Lebanon. They couldn't really access that, it sounds like. They didn't go that far. Uh, they only went as far as Tyre, it looks like. And the Macha Geshur area with a little question mark is just where the Bashan is, how far that went into. Not clear, and the whole northern swath was not conquered. So, among the different areas that are not conquered, it seems to be the most contiguous areas seem to be in the southwest, the areas the area of Gaza to Sinai, and in the north, where there's a swath of land which we should have got, but we didn't. We didn't extend our territory at the times of Yoshua. And Yoshua was castigated for it, and the later Shoftim were also castigated for it until the times of David Hamelech. Why is it that they did not do this? So, if you read through Sefer Shoftim. It's not so simple. If you read Shoftim, Shoftim gives us in Perik Beis and Aleph and Beis, gives numerous reasons as to why we didn't. Whether because we were not alacritous, whether Akash Baruch Hu allowed us to get the land la'at la'at, slowly, slowly, so it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be a void. There's numerous explanations offered by Tanakh as to why we didn't do this. 
The Ramban does make an interesting suggestion. Very fascinating suggestion. We're not going to read it in Sabbath. If you have a chance to look at it um, um, for your own research, really, really fascinating. And that is, as the Ramban points out, in Bamidbar Chafalef Chafalef, which is Parshus Chukas, where Israel are trying to get towards the land of Israel, they're trying to get access, and each nation rejects them. They try Edom, Edom says no, they come out with arms. They're not allowed to touch Oam and Moab, then they come to Sichon, and Sichon attacks them, and they, and they respond, and they conquer Sichon, and they conquer the land of Og. That's all happens in Parshish Chukas. In the mix, the Ramban says, Israel proper was supposed to have been all the way north and all the way south, as we saw in Moshe Rabbeinu's <laughs> promise, promise to, the land of Israel, to, to the nation of Israel. But ultimately, they arrived on the east bank of the Jordan. They said, well, this looks so nice. What do you think about this? I could see a nice family ranch over here. Right, so what happened? So they said, so Moshe Rabbeinu says, because they weren't willing to go into the land of Israel proper, first of all, they diminished the amount of land they needed, but it also, in a certain sense, was a punishment that they weren't able to access the full amount of the land of Israel fully to the north and the south because they were quite happy where they were. That's a very, very, very fascinating argument that Ramban suggests. Meaning to say we are, in a certain sense, accountable for part of that lack of conquest at the beginning. Nonetheless, that's the way it is. That's the way the status quo le- uh, leads us. And the area of Bashan, or the area of what we call today the Golan, seems to have been either part of the Transjordan allotment to, which is Eretz Israel Mamisht in, in most ways, to the lands, to the tribes of um, really Chazishev <coughs> Menashe, or it could have been, as is argued, actually could have been the original territory of Chazishev Menashe. <coughs> now, that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story, because what happens is that as Davar Melech settles in, Davar Melech now starts expanding. As he's able to reprise the Plishtim in the south, he starts his northern territory campaign. And we have this actually in Sefer Shmuel Beis, Perekhes, where Davar Melech is attacked and attacks. He attacks on the eastern border, he attacks and, and subdues Amon, Moab, Edom, and then he attacks north. Here's where, here's where his attack is. So he attacks the, the king of Tsova. What is Tsova? What do we call Tsova today? Generally speaking, Tsova is? It is Aleppo. Aleppo. Okay, that's generally what we, what we, we assume with Arketa Aram Tsova. We talk about the oldest biblical manuscript is? The Keter is? It's from Aleppo. David Mimeno Elef, Ushami Os Parashim, Esrim Elef Ish Ragli conquers 700, sorry, 1,700 chariots and 20,000 foot soldiers. Vayakir David Sareche, Vayosar Mimeno, Mimeno Mea Rechev, and he hamstrings all the, 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 the cavalry. Fascinating, why he does that? Why doesn't he requisition them? When you go to the Latrun today, you go to the tank museum, you look at a lot of the tanks, a lot of them were Egyptian and Syrian tanks, which the Israelis had to take and repaint. They didn't have, more, they were, no use supplying one of their arms before 1967, right? So meaning like, why did David Melech not re- requisition the horses? Fascinating uh, discussion. And he goes to Damascus. What's Damascus? Damascus. So David Melech reaches up far north. He extends the territory all the way into Aleppo, into Damascus today. And this is, the, this is the conquest of David Amalek's northern kingdom. Take a look at the maps, if you can, for... Let's see where it is. Oh, here we are. Oh, I missed out a section, but you know, we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, in, on, on page... Se- on figure seven. This is, if you take a look, this is the, the sort of zooming out to the Middle East. Aram Tzav, Aram Damascus, or Damascus is not just the cities of Damascus and Aram Tzav. It's really the northern area moving from Syria into Iraq. This whole area is what, is what David HaMelech conquers. He conquers deep, deep, deep into the north. I have to apologize. I did skip one little story which is important to appreciate. And that is, is that there was an attempt to go further north. 
and we see this in two Svarim. We see it in Sefer Yoshua and Sefer Shoftim. We have a little episode which happens to the tribe of Dan. Dan seems to get a territory which is in the south, but he doesn't feel like he's got requisite territory for his amount, the amount of population. And part of that is because he's not willing or is too scared to attack the, the, the tribes, the, the, the non-Jews just immediately around them in the central Israel. What does he do? He sends out a reconnaissance mission, the tribe of Dan, all the way north, and they come to an area called Laish. Laish is a, is a city actually in the Golan, or is, a, is in that particular area, and conquers it. So as opposed to dealing with the very difficult neighbors who are non-Jewish and conquering that area, they go north into the Bashan area, and he goes and conquers this area called Laish, conquers it. They, have, they actually have a military alliance with, um, I believe, with Sidon, but they're too far away to be able to help them. And they now they call the city Dan. The reason why it's important in Tanakh is because that becomes the place of the shrine of Micha. Pesel Micha is taken by Dan. It's taken by the tribe of Dan and is used as their, as their local shrines for one of the crimes or the sins of Israel. It's to be found in Shoftim and Yoshua. And what is interesting about this is they castigated because they should have taken care of their own territory. <coughs> but nonetheless, you do see a tribal expansion into the area of Laish, which is the northern area. If you take a look in the maps, that is actually in figure six. This is why I skipped out before. If you take a quick, quick look, here's the, the base Rechov Valley, uh, which, is, which is north of the Kinneret. And Laish and Dan are to be found in the north there where the little arrow is. It's a little darker and they're towards the foothills of Hermon. And that's where they actually conquer. What is interesting today is that the one of the springs which fee feeds the Jordan River is called Dan. Right, it's that, particularly that area. In fact, it's one of the largest springs, natural springs in the world. The amount of cubic water which is, which is poured through it into the Jordan River is, is unbelievable. But nonetheless, it's called Dan. And part of the reason it's called Dan is because of this tribal conquest of Dan expanding his territory in, in the, the times of, of Shoftim. We don't know exactly when. It's, the Mephorshim struggled to, to date towards the beginning, towards the end. It sounds like it was towards the beginning because Pesel Mecha was a continual problem. Okay, what, now, coming back to David Amelech, because we we're, we're, we we're just in that moment. What happens? What, what is the halachic status of David Amelech's conquest as he, as he goes far north? Turns out that it is not the same as the rest of Israel. So, for instance, as an example, the Mishnah in Avodah in Source 8 tells us, You cannot rent houses in the land of Israel to people who serve Avodah Zarah, people who are polytheists. And, and of course not fields. In Surya, you can rent to them houses. What is Surya? Surya sounds very dramatically similar to... Syria today, right? But um, and that's where that's in fact where the British cho chose it from. But nonetheless, what 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 was what was deficient about this area? This is the area of David Melech's conquest. Rashi tells us there's Machlokes Rishonim, but for the moment, Rashi tells us in Source Nine: Syria Aram Tzovas v'Semucha le'Eretz Yisrael v'Kivshua David v'Chibra le'Kedushas Eretz Yisrael Shelai Alpi Hadibor. It was not with divine sanction. It was not al Adibor. Hashem didn't tell him to do this. He conquered it. He expanded the territory northwards. It was without all of Israel's sanction as well. And therefore, it's considered what's called Kivush Yachid. Conquest of an individual. What, do, what, does that, what difference does it make? So the missionary of Avodah is telling us, it's not exactly like Eretz Israel. We see for the sake of selling or renting a field to a Oved Avodah Kochavim, to a polytheist. Let's go one step further. La Halacha. The halachas that are tuliyos pa'aretz, the, la the land-based halachas, trumos, maestros, shmita, 
Orla. What, what's the halacha about them in that land of the area of Syria? The Ramam tells us le halacha in the beginning of Hilchos Shemois, source 10. Eretz Yisrael ha'amura b'chol mokom hi me'artzos ba'artzos she'kivshon melech Yisrael or navi midas rov Yisrael. Israel, for the sake of halachic posterity, what is the land of Israel? It's something which was conquered by Israel with the sanction of a Novi and most of Israel's acceptance. If any individual or person without sanction of all of Israel and a prophet were to conquer, that would be considered Kivush Yachid. That's an individual going out and does not have the status of, the, even though it may be part of Avraham Avinu's original promised land, which we learned about, it's still not considered part of Eretz Yisrael. Ramam goes on to in the next halacha, in the next paragraph. He says, Eretz Yisrael amura b'chol makom, hi ba'artzos shekir shal melech Yisrael o navi midas rov Yisrael. I apologize, it looks like I, I copied this paragraph twice. Um, there we go. Um, Let's go finish up the paragraph we were in. From the period of Ubinezer, Echelek, Chilek Yoshua, Basino, Kol Eretz Israel, Shvatim, Avapishalai, Nichvusha, Kadeshalai, Yer, Kivush Yachid, Keshiala, Kol Shevet, Shevet, Vichwash Helkos. When Yoshua came into the land of Israel, what did he do? He established the boundaries of every tribe, even though those boundaries included enemy territory, but they hadn't yet conquered. As we saw, most of the land wasn't necessarily conquered, even internally. Why? So that he was giving them the license that when they were to conquer it in the future, that would become Eretz Israel proper, Kivush Rabin, but not the land of the Surya area. And that's the, the, I thought I copied in the second paragraph as the second halacha, apparently I copied the same one twice. The Raman goes on in halacha base to tell us that David Zemelech's conquest in the area of Aram Tzava and Aram Damasek, the area of Aleppo and Damascus northwards, is considered Kivush Yachid, and therefore it is only Lahalacha, not only, but it is not like Chutzlar, it's not like the diaspora exactly in the sense that you keep Trumas and Maestros mid Rabbonon. On a rabbinic level, we, are still, we would still be Mafresh, we would still separate Trumas and Maestros in that area. The, com the complication over here is, is where does it end and where does it start? Meaning, if it's Eretz Israel proper, then this is not even a discussion because we know that Chatzit Shev Menashe was there. But how far did they go? How far was the Gvul, was the boundary of Macha and Geshur? In the first place, beyond which David Melech then conquered in his, in his rule. That's where it gets a little complicated. It does seem to be that certainly a large section of the Golan Heights, as we have it today, are in fact part of the original conquest. But it does sound like there's a secondary conquest which goes all the way into Syria, which is technically Eretz Israel Midrabanan, because of Kivush Yachet. That seems to be the, the, the definition. By the way, why did the name Golan, where they come from, did not come from the, from the Shroma place on the upper, on, in Washington Heights? Where did it come from? So the truth is, is that it's the name of one of the Ore Miklat that was in that area. So if we take a, I actually, I forgot to make mention of this beforehand, because this is a very important point, is, uh, is here we go. When describing the Ore Miklat, all the different cities of, of, uh, of refuge in Source 4, if we just flip back for a few moments. Az Yadil Moshe Shalosh Orim Be'ever Yadain Mizracha Shemesh. He divided three cities on Transjordan, by the way, which is not the right ratio. If you have two and a half tribes versus none and a half tribes, it shouldn't be three, three. Brother, Rather, Gomorrah and Michael talks about this. Very good. So Marcus Yudam Vase talks about the fact that they had a little bit of a, a little bit of a murder issue, uh, a homicide issue on the on the East Bank. But nonetheless, they had three. They had three cities. What are they? Lonus Shomakol Rotzach. That's in Pasuk Membeis in Memen Gimel. Es Betzer Bamidbar Beeretz Mishar LeRuveni Ves Ramos Bagilad LeGadi Ves Golan Babashan LaMenashi. 
Golan was the name of the Irmiklat in the area of Bashan, which served the tribe of Menasheh. That's where the name Golan comes from. It's not a modern Israeli invention. This was Moses, giver of the book of the, book of the Bible, who, gave it, um, who talked about this area. The primary city, which is the city of refuge in the area of Bashan, is called Golan, and henceforth the name which, we, which has become adopted as to what's called the Golan Heights today. Now, that's, it is interesting, by the way, as a footnote, the Ramam does say that the land of Syria, even this northern territory, does have the halachas of the land of Israel proper for certain aspects. One example is, is here, take a look in Hechel Shabbos in source 11. If a person is buying a property in the land of Israel and they're concerned that if they don't make close the deal right now and it's Shabbos, they're going to lose this opportunity. And by the way, this is very real when it comes to a lot of the, the, the land acquisition that happens certainly in Arab territories today. Let's see that a person, that, that there's a window of opportunity and they can buy the land. But if they don't get the document written right now, they're going to lose out on it. And it's Shabbos, what do you do? So Allah is, a person can do Amir La'akum, which means to say you can tell them to write. So they're performing the Isra Daraisa, but it's Isra Daraisa to tell them to do something. You're not allowed to do that. Why? Because this is because Mishum Mitzvah Yishuv Eretz Yisrael. There's very specific cases where this is where this is allowed. One is Yishuv Eretz Yisrael. What happens if it's in the area of Damascus? Don't go there without close adult supervision today. But nonetheless, if let's say that was the that was that was sex, says the Ramam, for the for for the sake of, we'll call it Amir um, Akom, for the sake of Yishuv Eretz Yisrael, we would say yes, you would be allowed to do that. Just it has a sort of in between status the area of Syria. <laughs> Interesting, interesting. That, that, that Ram doesn't say that. You're right, but that would that would be that would be one halakhic way to look at it. The Ramam says it's like Eretz Israel for this. That's what they, his argument. The Ramam seems to see it as a grey area. Nonetheless, we're not actually focusing on the Suri area because it seems to be this this kivush yachid kivush rabim, where there was conquest fully or partially. Whether it was Eretz Yisrael, Mid Oraisa, Mid could be somewhere in the northern reaches of the Bashan or the, of, of the Golan Heights, but nonetheless, certainly most of it is Eretz Yisrael proper. Let's go a little further. We, afterwards, what happens is if you keep reading Sefer Melachim and it gets depressingly, depressingly uh, um, um, oppressive as you carry on in Sefer Melachim, as each piece of the territory is taken and the exile of the ten tribes does not happen in one file swoop. It happens sequentially. First of all, the eastern tribes are taken, then the northern tribes are taken, then finally central Shomron is taken uh, from the different stages of Aram, and then later on Assyria under Tiglath Pileser, and then Shansancherev. There's numerous stages of the exile. And slowly but surely, these tribes disappear. These tribes disappear um, in, into, into the diaspora. That's what, that's what happens. What, what happens afterwards? It, uh, then Judea manages to manage to stay for a few, a few good decades later, we have Chizkiah, we have a good time. Chizkiah manages to stay, there's Yoshio. But unfortunately, things devolve and ultimately ending in Sidkiah, there is Golos. And we spend a little bit of time in Babylon and Egypt, um, where, the Jews, where, the Jews, uh, where the Jews run. Ultimately, we are given license to return by the king of Persia. They have a different diplomatic foreign policy then. Then the Babylonians. Babylonians' foreign policy generally involved killing everybody. The and the Persian foreign policy was live, in, live and pay a, heck, a lot of taxes to us. That's the way they generally understood, which is why when you read Megiddo's Esther, as we just did, when it talks about Mehavi Esther and Medina, it doesn't mean to say that they were all Persian. It means to say that they taxed all 127 of those states. They allowed all the naturals and the inhabitants to do their thing, 
and they had an incredible postal system and spy system. So the espionage. They knew exactly what was going on, and they taxed everybody. And should anybody forfend, God forfend, contradict the Persian Empire, they were, their, their troops were sent in. But nonetheless, so they allowed the Jews to back to the area of Judea, and this became what is known as the Second Commonwealth, what we call the Binyan Ba'ayashani Shivas Tzion, discussed in Chagah, Zechariah, Melachi, Ezra, Nehemiah. That's, what, that, that's the, the period of time, the end of Tanakh, as we have it, the canon of Tanakh. So in this, in this time, we, it is not so clear as, far, as to how far and how much they conquer. If you look, it, take a look in the in map, let's take a look at map figure 8, I believe this is. If you take a quick look over here, there are different colors of cities in, this, in, this, in the Dad Mikra. There are the light-colored cities and the dark-colored cities. The light-colored cities are the ones which is labeled as the settlement mentioned in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're not going to go through it because there are numerous, numerous psukim. We have to go through all of Ezra and Nehemiah to appreciate all the cities. But you can see that the dotting of those cities are generally in central Israel, meaning the province of Judea, which was a Persian province, was in central Israel where we have Yehuda and Shamron today, what politically people call the West Bank. This is... Um, and this is the area which is, in fact, given back to the nation of Israel with the mandate of the Persian government, Artach Shasta, Koresh, all the, uh, Koresh and then Artach Shasta, all the different stages of the return. You'll notice as well that there are other darker cities. And a lot of those are da darker cities are, in fact, we take a look at them, Goran, Ashtarot, Almon, Kanat, Geder. These are later cities which you're going to see are going to be in use or going to be conquered later on by, um, or, or not conquered, but actually are settled later on by different stages in the times of the Mishnah and the Gomorrah. So if, as an example, take a look at source 12, the Mishnah in Shvi'as, Perek Vav. Shalosh Aratzos Shvi'as. There are three lands for uh, pertaining to the halachas of Shemitah. Kol Sheikh Zirku Ole Bavel, Me'eretz Yisrael Ad Kaziv, Lo Noichav Lo Nevat. The first stage is what's Ole Bavel, the people who return from Bavel. This is the second commonwealth. There seems to be three territories. The two first ones are the ones we're going to focus on right now. One is what's called Ole Bavel, and the other one is called Ole Mitzrayim. The Babylonian return and the Ole Mitzrayim. What is Ole Mitzrayim? The ones who came from Egypt? That's Yoshua, the first conquest. Second conquest is considered Ole Bavel. This area, which seems to be the demarcation, is Kaziv. Where's Kaziv? So if you go to Israel today, there is Nachal, there's, a, there's, a, there's the Kaziv Nature Reserve, actually. It's, a little, it's, a, it's towards the north. It's in the area of Akko, a little further north of Akko. And it seems to be, again, it's very hard to debate. There's a large debate as to how far north this is. But it seems to be that it's, it, if you take a look at the map for, uh, that we're looking at right now in figure 8, it seems to be that the area of Kaziv is just a little further north of Akko. So we're talking about pro, pa parallel to the Galilee. I mean, it does not seem that at the times, at the initial permission that Persia gave to Israel, it did not seem that we went too far north. And the, uh, the reason is obvious, is because we weren't exactly walking in with armies. We were subservient Persian citizens. When we talk about Golis Pras, Persia, it doesn't mean to say that we were, ser we, we were in their territory necessarily. It means that we were in Israel and serving them in Israel. That's what, that's what it means. That we, the base image was built with their permission. This is the, it, it seems that it was a more of a, I will call it, limited state of affairs. Nonetheless, even though that's tr that, that, that is the truth, it, it is interesting that, um, that it does seem to expand a little bit. So it, I, it, we don't have so much time right now, and we actually are about, about to have a program for renewal, which I'd, a really high advisory stays for if we're able to, about kidney donation for somebody in our community, which will be starting in just a few minutes. 
want to just do a, a few markers which are important in this, in, this, um, in this next step over here. The Ramam in the continuation of, uh, of Halachas on page 7 describes the difference between Oile Mitzrayim and Oile Bavel. And he describes that when the, the Oile Bavel came back, even though they got a more, we'll call it, reduced area in the land of Judea, in the area of Israel, they returned, he paskins, the second Kedusha, when Ezra came back, was a Kedusha which is everlasting. And that took place within the boundaries of what they were able to, where they got permission from, Persia to resettle in. The area that existed beyond their reach from Persian license, but was in the initial conquest of Israel from the times of Yoshua, they had the halachas of Trumos and Rasus Midderabonon. Meaning, the second Kedusha did not extend fully to them at this point, says the Rambam. So that in-between territory, we'll call it Territory B, to avoid, put a, we don't want to get into uh, Oslo right now, but uh, we'll call Territory B is, in, is, is Trumas and Maestros Midrabonon. And that's much more of a limited area. We do see, that without going through the Rambam itself, and he, he gives an example at the bottom of page 7, so again, he quotes the Lashon of the Mishnah. Again, it's very hard to know what, what that specific area is, but it doesn't seem to be as far north, and he doesn't talk about the eastern boundary. Neither does the Mishnah, which gives us a little more complexity as to what it is. Nonetheless, we do know that Jews did live in the Golan area during the Second Temple. How do we know this? Two examples. One example is, when Josephus talks about this area, he talks about how when Alexander came in, and he talks about a, a conquest or a fight he has with Demetrius, he talks about a particular area, the returning to the area of Gamla. Gamala, he calls it. And he talks about how the Jews were liberated from the evil reign of Demetrius. This is the breaking up of the, of the, of the, Greek, uh, of the Greek kingdom when the Greeks con uh, um, conquered the Persians. Where is Gamla? The answer is, if you go to, the, if you go to the, uh, the Golan today, you can go to the museum, and you can see the archaeological ruins of Gamla. Gamla is in the Golan, and we have the archaeological evidence of the fight of the Jews there in Gamla. It is, it is there. It's, there's no contravening what actually exists. You can go and you can see the video. You can go and see the archaeological remains of Gamla. It's a, it's a, a, it is a military. It's, a, it's, a, it's militarily, it's a height, which is that little hill you see in the picture. That is where Gamla was and is. Another example. When I went for hikes, when I was in Karen Avenue, we used to go for hikes up in, up in, the, in the Golan. So we came to this area, and the tour guide ever pointed out, if you take a look on the top of page 9, there's actually, this is from a, from a Sefer, uh, uh, talking about the areas of, of, um, of the, uh, during the times of the second, of the second temple, talks about, so towards the, the fourth line from the bottom of this paragraph, but then after this scholarly activity, a basalt lintel was uncovered in Dabura in the Golan that decisively bore the inscription, Zer Bes Medrashoi Rabbi Eliezer HaKapar. That's unbelievable. That means to say, we found the base measure of Rabbi Eliezer HaKapar. We see him in the Mishnah, we read him, we learn his teachings, and we know that his base medrash, it is an, it, 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 this is in a museum now, in the Golan, can be found directly there in the Golan. It means to say the Jews were living there. Now, yes, according to the Rambam, this was Mitzvah, Trumas, and Rasus, Midrabon, because they didn't get the license to go further north at this point in time. But were the Jews there? Absolutely. The Jews were there all the time throughout the Second Temple, during the First Temple and the Second Temple. Go a little further. We move to the 20th century. During the, during the, after the First World War and the League of Nations mandate to take a look at the bottom of page tw 9, we see the, the, the mandate includes, basically it was, a, it was a little bit of a quibble between France and England. They both wanted as much territory as possible. And so the general view was that England got Palestine and Transjordan and, uh, and the French got um, Syria and, and Lebanon. We're going to ignore Iraq for a moment. Now, 
What is interesting about this, uh, about this proposition is, of course, you know, it ignores the, na the natural inhabitants and the natural heritage of the area. Um, but it's, th this, is, this is, and there was going to be an international zone um, towards the, the north of Palestine. That was the, the status quo which remained um, after, the, after the, the, world, the, world, the war in 1948. If you take a look on page 10, there's the map in, of what Israel looked like post the 1949 armistice, in which Syria controlled the Golan Heights, Lebanon controlled north, and we see the, the general map of Israel. You know, Jordan contained, controlled the West Bank, Egypt controlled the Gaza, and Israel was a small sliver of land. Following 1967, and just to, we're not going to read it inside right now, but it is which one should appreciate. If one wants to learn what actually happened, you need, one needs to read the historical evidence. One reads the historical evidence. The place to go is Six Days of War by Ma Michael Oren, who authoritatively went through all, went through all the newspapers and went through all the archives that he was allowed to, as he says in his introduction, about what was going on over there. And in the north, as an, this is just one example of, of, of this, quiet on the, in Source 16, quiet on the Israel-Syrian border was always relative, of course, since November, this is 1966, and after signing the Egyptian-Syrian Treaty, since the similar operation of the, and the failure of either Syria or Egypt to react to it, Damascus seemed eager to observe a tacit ceasefire. From then until the end of the year, a few incidents of note were recorded. Then, starting in early January 1967, the area began to simmer. Syrian tanks rained 31 shells on kibbutz Al-Nagar and wounded two members of the kibbutz Shamir with machine gun fire. Clashes continued for a week before culminating in the death of one Israeli and wounding of two others by an anti-personnel mine planted at Moshav Dishon. Al-Fatah took credit for the attack, because remember, Syria was financing the Palestinian terrorism at this point in time. Things haven't changed. The mine bore Syrian army markings. A candid radio Damascus revealed on January 16th that Syria had changed its strategy, moving to, from defense to attack. We will carry on operations until Israel has been eliminated. And this is the building up of the shelling in the, um, in, um, of the, uh, from the Golan into the Galil, continually, continually, continually. When Israel begs that Syria stays out of the war, when Israel makes the preemptive defensive attack on Egypt, Syria continues uh, reigning in um, um, shelling throughout the six days of the war until finally Israel pushed north in the last two days of the war, taking back um, the Golan Heights. Um, and by the way, that was when the international community got involved, when the poor Syrians were being attacked by the Israelis because mm. they were defenseless. Uh, but un until that point, this, uh, the international community was busy trying to work out how to get one ship through the Straits of Tehran because that's their, um, that was the Chochmah at the time of the international community. Um, so what happens? What's the halakhic status of this? So there's a very fascinating sefer written by Rav Shaul, the Israeli, called Eretz Chemda. It is worthwhile reading the entire sefer, but for, for our purposes now, he <coughs> asks the question, what is the halakhic status today? So here's what he says. This is in, in um, Chelek Aleph, Perek Gimel, or Simon Gimel, um, and in uh, the, the Perek Gimel, um, Simon Yud Gimel. He says, Kedushas Kivush Bizmanenu. What is the halacha, halachic status today of conquering the land of Israel? He, on, the, on page 11, Bitchum Shekivshuo Ole Bavel, Eina Kivush Shebiomenu Meshane Davar. So the, the conquest that happened at the times of Ole Bavel does not change anything today. Also, Mitzvah Shenagu Bizman by Sheni Min HaTorah. So, halachically speaking, we follow the, the halachic domains of bias, shame, which means anything which was, which was a mitzvah midah araisa, at base shan, basically, just below the kinneret, is Midah Araisa, is Halachas of Trumas Amasu Midah Araisa. Anything north is Midah Rabbana. That hasn't changed because that was the Kedusha of Ezra. 
And he says, of course, because we depend on the Midrash, we need a base Midrash for. And he goes on the next paragraph to say, Mitzvahs which require all of Israel being there, we're waiting for that, and Bimher of Yomenu, we will see that. He says, however, in, in, on line 15, skipping a paragraph, Bekivush michutz letchum ole bavel. What happens if we conquer beyond the Tchum of Bavel? So we go further north, like we do today. If this conquest just goes further north, we have to differentiate between what was promised in Bamidbar Lamedalet, what Moshe promised, and what Hashem promised to Avram Avinu. As an example, Meaning, if we were to conquer the land, which was Moshe's promise to the, land, to the nation of Israel, even though Ole Bavil didn't necessarily get it, we could potentially, he says, reinstate the halachas of Shumas and Maishas Midaraisa. If we have the Tna'e Kivush, the conditions of Kivush, what are the conditions of Kivush? What, is, what does it mean to say to conquer it? So he gives, a, he gives the examples based on the halachic analysis, which took many, many, many pages before this. So not to shortchange Rabbi Yisraeli, just you have to appreciate everything in context. But nonetheless, he says, he explains, There's two requests. It needs to be for all of Israel, not for a particular tribe or family. And number two is that nobody else can enter that land. It is sovereign Jewish territory. And he says, It doesn't need to be the way he analyzes it with the Melech and all of Israel. It needs to be for all of Israel and it needs to be sovereign. So therefore he goes through the Rishonim and he says, then he goes through the Rambam, the Radvaz and the Kesef Mishnah. And he says, Based on the Radvaz's view, therefore today we would halakhically have that status. We, we fulfilled both those times. According to the Kesef Mishnah, not so simple. If you take a look in, the, in, in line 39, you need to have the walled cities being conquered. Then perhaps, he says, So maybe you still need the Sanhedrin for the Bate Are Choma, for the walled cities in order for the territory conquered, even though it's sovereign and even though it's for all of Israel. So Zemachlaikas, generally speaking, there's different post scheme as to what the status is in the Halachic, in the Golan. But there's no question whatsoever to us that from the times of Aram Avinu to the times of Israel, to the times of Yeshua, to Shoftim, times of Davar Melech, Times all the way through the second base midrash, there were Jews living in the Bashan, and in fact, in fact, it is it, it it boggles the mind to think that at this point in time, any UN resolution could even think of handing over the Golan Heights because the basic question we should ask ourselves is who should we hand it to? The mass murderer, the the, the person who gases in a population Assad, ISIS, rebels, Iran. Who should we hand it to exactly at this point in time? Who is it that we're supposed to be returning the sovereign right to the Golan? If not, to learning where it really comes from. I'd like to end off with the, with the map, and the last map, and that is the, the map of Yechezkel. Yechezkel talks about the future. Bimher of Yomenu, when the Mashiach comes, and he talks about 13 swaths of land. Each tribe is going to get a, a parallel swath of land, a horizontal swath of land. And he talks about it going all the way up. We're not going to go through the Pesukim, but in, source, in, in map 9, in figure 9, he talks about Dan, Asher, and Naftali in the north, and Menashe. Look how far north. Do you see where that is? That's Mount Ahor. That's back to the original territory of the Promised Land. We're talking about Syria and Lebanon. Now, this is not, I just want to, I'm not, 
um, advancing that any, uh, that or, or purporting that anyone should pick up arms right now and go out there and are on a personal mission. But I do want to point out that the Yecheskel talks about the times when Yemitz Hashem, all of this land, Yemitz Hashem will return to us. It should be peace be his manenu, and hopefully truth should reign supreme. Truth should reign supreme. <laughs>